Well, good morning. That's loud, isn't it? Can we uh, possibly turn that down just a tiny bit? I just suddenly freaked out because I went to pick up my Bible and I have no idea where it is. And I've got a whole bunch of things marked in there. Um, so uh, Becky's going to go and look for that somewhere. Um, so hopefully she'll come in at the last second uh, and uh, give that to me. Uh, I want to echo what Haley said. It's so good to be here with you, in front of you, not in front of a camera. Um, you show a lot more animation and character than a camera does, and I can already feel the energy uh, coming from you. Um, who's, good, who's happy to be back here this morning? Woohoo! Awesome, awesome. Uh, it is, is so good. I got a text when I was leading a service on the recording. Um, thank you, sweetie. Um, when, I was, um, yeah, when I recorded and I was, I was service leading, and um, uh, it was a text from Haley saying, Margot said you forgot to pray. <laughs> but don't worry, she prayed for you. Oh, yes, so good, so lucky. Um, so it's good to know people, you know, keeping me on my toes. So um, next time I service lead, whether it be online uh, or here, I promise I will pray, let, let Margot know. Um, but can I start off this morning by praying? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word to us. Uh, we thank you. Uh, for the gift that it is to be your children. Lord, we thank you for the blessing it is to be called as your people, uh, Lord, and we thank you for the privilege that it is to continue your story of redemption in this world as your church, as your people, as your body, uh, even in times as tumultuous as this. Lord, your light still shines brightly. So, Father, speak to us this morning through your word. Uh, God, get, get me out the way that you would speak uh, to each of us, and may it be for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, um, this morning, uh, surprise, surprise, we're continuing on our um, looking at the biblical story, the big story of the Bible. And uh, last week, I looked at the book of Judges, and um, basically, we looked at how when the people of God are left to their own devices, um, and uh, forget to keep God in their lives, to keep, forget to keep God at the center of their lives. They stray, they walk away, and uh, there's just essentially this sort of spiral and descent into um, lawlessness and sin, not unlike what we saw back in, in Genesis uh, 1 to 9, where uh, people sinned, turned away from God, and then just sin increased and increased and got worse and worse and worse. Uh, and that's where we pick up our story this morning. God has just raised up the prophet Samuel, who is the judge par excellence. Uh, but as we heard, he's getting older, and he uh, institutes his sons as judges in the land, but they don't follow his footsteps. And the people recognize that this isn't going to go well for them. They've seen what's happened in the past when the judges stray from God, when they don't do what uh, God has said in his law, and when they give in to corruption. Uh, and they know that's the descent into the ungodly. And so they ask Samuel to make them look like the nations around them, to have a king. They, they look around and they say, hey, well, these nations are working pretty good. Why don't we be like them? And this would remind us of a refrain that we heard in the last four or five chapters of Judges that said, the people had no king and they did what was right in their own eyes. And as you read that, you might think, well, they need a king, don't they? But they've already got a king. 
You see, God is their king. And in Judges, that line there is meant to, remind, uh, meant to point out to us that they've rejected God as their king. And when we reject, reject God as king, they do what is right in their own eyes, and they just are given over uh, to their sinful nature. So they look to the, the, um, the, the nations around them, um, and they want to be like them. They're forgetting their call, though, to be distinct from the nations, aren't they? God calls them to be distinct from the nations, and they're forgetting that when they look to them and say, we want to be just like them. And I always, when, when I read this to start with, I, I, um, the thought that came to my mind is they're being quite lazy. Uh, they're looking around and they're going, well, we want a king to do to keep us in line, to be our leader, because we can't be bothered doing it ourselves. You see, the people had everything that they needed in order to govern their nation, to live a just life, to live justly, uh, to uphold society. But, but they don't want to do it themselves. They want someone else to do it on their behalf. And Samuel, obviously, he goes to the Lord and he's distraught because he sees the rejection of God um, he doesn't see it as a positive thing. He sees it as another step in uh, their decline. Uh, and he's, he says to them, you know, be careful what you wish for. And he comes back to them and reminds them. He says to them, he comes back from God and in uh, Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, um, verses 10 to 19, he, he says, he says the word of the, he, Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, these will be the ways of the king. And this is a warning. This is a warning. He says, They will take your sons and appoint them as chariot, charioteers and horsemen to run before the chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of the armies. He will take, your, uh, he will, he will take people to, to, make plow, to plow his ground and reap his harvest, to make implements for war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters for, to be perfumers and cook, cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, your olives, your orchards, and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain, a tenth of your vineyards, and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men. He will take your donkeys and he'll put them to work for himself. He will take all of these things. It comes at a cost that perhaps you don't realize and that perhaps you don't see when you look to the nations around you. The king's going to want something. He's going to need some stuff from you. Are you sure you want a king? What do the people say? Yes, yes, we do. We still want a king. Uh, one of our favorite movies that we like to watch, and it's not a family-friendly movie exactly, um, but it's called The Dictator. Um, I don't know if anyone has seen The Dictator with Sasha Baron Cohen, um, who's infamous for other things um, as well. And uh, basically this film is around uh, a general... Aladdin, who's the dictator of this country, and it centers around the United Nations, and particularly America, wanting to turn the dictatorship that he runs into a democracy. Okay, and that's how the sort of movie is centered. And right at the end of the film, uh, he gives this speech. Um, he says, why are you so anti-dictators? Imagine if America was a dictatorship. You could let 1% of the people have all the nation's wealth. You could help your rich friends get richer by cutting their taxes. You could bail them out when they gamble and lose. You could ignore the needs of the poor for health care and education. Your media would appear free, but would secretly be controlled by one person in his family. 
You could wiretap phones. You could, you could torture foreign prisoners. You could rig elections. You could lie about why you go to war. You could fill your prisons with one particular racial group and no one would complain. You could use the media to scare the people into supporting policies that are against their interests. Why are you anti-dictators? Clearly, he's having a go at democracy, isn't he? Be careful what you wish for. Be careful what you wish for. You might think you're getting one thing, but actually, subversively, you might get something completely different, or you might get the very thing you're trying to avoid. And that's what Samuel is saying to the people. He says, be careful what you wish for. You may not get what you want, but they get what they want. They get a king, everything they could want. And at first, this seems okay. The king seems fantastic, King Saul. And uh, this is how Saul is introduced to us. There was a man who, whose name was Kish. He was a Benjaminite, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people as handsome as, the, as, 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 handsome as Saul. From his, head, from his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people. What's the resounding image we get of Saul? He's handsome. <laughs> He's tall. He's picture-perfect image of a king from the outside, isn't he? He's the poster boy. He's gorgeous. He's everything you could want from a king, at least from the outside. But then we get this kind of hint that perhaps he, he's, he's attractive and he's tall, but he might not be the sharpest tool in the shed. How he's introduced? He spends three days chasing his dad's donkeys around the countryside. And if you go around the map, looking at all the places he visits, he's essentially going around in this big circle looking for his father's donkeys. He's good-looking, but he's not the sharpest tool in the shed. And even his slave is the one who says, we've been chasing after him for three days. Maybe we should go and ask the prophet uh, to find our donkeys for us. And he's like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. And off they go to find uh, Samuel. And look, if the Book of Kings was a Disney film, it would be this wonderful story about how um, you, know, not even, not a, you don't have to be the brightest to be the most successful king. But the Bible is real life. Right, And so therefore, at, at this point, things start to go badly. Right? Israel moves from officially being a people group of 12 tribes who will bring the blessing of God's covenant to the world to being an official nation, a kingdom through whom God will achieve his purposes in bringing the nations and the world back to himself, to uh, restoration and reconciliation. So though the government changes in Israel, the story still doesn't. God's purpose still doesn't. And the danger in, that Israel has when they're having a king is that they will fall into the trappings of political life and the ambitions of men instead of the ambitions of God for his own people. Right? And the Bible evaluates the kings of Israel not as a feel-good, happily-ever-after happily story, but on how faithful they are to living out the law of God that he has given them. How faithful they were to God's covenant is how every king is evaluated from this point on. Whether they were good, whether they were bad, isn't regarded with their political gains or how far they expand the kingdom, 
but on their faithfulness to God. And we see this particularly coming through Saul and David, who are contrasted. It comes through, uh, firstly, in this theology of kingship that is laid for us, right? The centers around that God is the king, and those who are within the monarchy are under kings to this God, the one true king. In the beginning, we get this idea of coming through God's anointing on those whom he chooses for the king. It is God who chooses Saul. It is God who chooses David. It is God who gives his spirit. It is God who takes it away. It is God, the, the king is there to serve the true king his, um, as his underking. And so God, through constituting his people through the law and through the covenants, which he's still faithful to, he gives them the land and appointing to, is still the one at the top. So, as promising as Saul is, particularly through human eyes, he doesn't work out. Ultimately, Saul's downfall was that he didn't follow God. He didn't do things the way God wanted him to do in the time and timing that God wanted him to do. Essentially, what we see is Saul seeing himself as the king at the top and God underneath him somewhat as a tool to be used for his purposes, rather than God using Saul as the leader of his people to do what God wants him to do for God's purposes. And we see this in a number of ways. Saul gets impatient waiting on Samuel to show up for battle and decides that he's the one who's going to consult God as a priest and make sacrifice instead of waiting for Samuel to arrive Instead of consulting the Lord before another battle, he makes a rash oath when he sees that, uh, from his own point of view, that the time is right to strike the enemy. He disobeys God by sparing the life of the king of the Amalekites. He pursues David, God's anointed, because he's jealous of the praise of people rather than what God thinks. He orders the slaughter of faithful priests and their entire village. Even when his own countrymen won't do it, he commands a foreigner to go and slaughter the priests, all because they helped David. He's worried about what other people think more than what God thinks. He goes to a medium to consult with the dead in order to get Samuel's advice. His heart is far from God's heart. His priorities are far from God's. His life is not aligned with God. He's forgotten who anointed him. He's forgotten whose servant he is. He's forgotten whose people he's leading. He's forsaken God's word. He's forsaken God's law, which was to guide and lead him as he guided and led the people. The priorities of his heart, of his kingship, are not the priorities of God. And so what does God do? He takes away what he has. 1 Samuel 16, verse 14 God removes his spirit from him and gives him a spirit instead to torment him. And we contrast this with King David. And David is the, the ultimate king, the king who not just Saul is contrasted with, but again, every other king following is also contrasted with too. And we see this, uh, the, the, he's, he's called obviously, um, I'm sure you know the phrase, um, a man after God's own heart. And this comes through first, I think, almost strongly um, in, the, in the rage that he sees in the battle against Goliath, where no one will stand up to Goliath. Listen, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, uh, starting at verse 26, and I'll skip to a few verses later. He says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that should defy the armies of the living God? 
You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defiled. This very day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the Philistine army this very day to the birds of the air and the wild animals of the field, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not save by sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hand." Can you hear the passion and, uh, and just the energy that, God, uh, that David has for seeing God's name be made great, for, for seeing God's great name be made, made so much, being, being glorified? The Lord, the battle is the Lord's, and the Lord is the one who will give you into our hand. David is firmly focused on God and what God is doing and letting God fight the battles and letting God's will be done rather than what he wants to happen, rather than seeing things done on his own terms, in his own way. He's ready to see, and passionately so, ready to see God's, God acting. And he continues to do this uh, in the rest of his life. He refuses to do things in an earthly manner. Twice he has a clear opportunity to kill Saul before he's officially made king, but he refuses to. David realizes that all, all he has, sorry, David realizes that God is all he has, that doing things God's way by justice and mercy, by righteousness is the way, not only that he should lead, but also that he should live his life. If we listen to the opening verses of some of his psalms, we get this clear image of David's heart, of how every part of his life and his character was to be focused on and submitted to God. Starting at Psalm, the first few verses of, or first verse of each, Psalm 34, 35, 36, and 37. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast. In the Lord, let the humble hear and be glad. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise up for, for my help. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. In all these different ways, in all these different contexts and psalms of, of praise, of fearing the Lord, of running from wickedness, of seeking refuge in God, we see the character of David come out as someone who centers his life around God. As I said, David was known to be and described as a man after God's own heart. But the question is, what made him great? We know he wrote these Psalms, but we also know that he did horrible things. He slept with Bathsheba, killed her husband, Uriah, and then covered it up with murder. Out of pride, he gave an ill-advised census and did many other things. What made David great? 
One author notes that what made David great wasn't the fact that he was a successful leader, musician, or warrior, but particularly he was a great man because he was willing to overlook others' sin, but unwilling to overlook his own. He was willing to overlook others' sins, and perhaps a better way to say that is willing to forgive others their sin, but unwilling to overlook his own. He was a gracious man. He uh, was bearing with the failings of other people, eager to give his enemies a second chance. As I said, Saul opposed him at every turn. He did not rejoice in Saul's death, but he wept for him. When people defected from armies who fought against him, he welcomed them into his own. He was unnecessarily kind to people, uncommonly patient with Shemai's spiteful cursing. Later, David would pardon those who rebelled against him during Absalom's insurrection. Time and time again, David showed himself to be unlike other people, willing to take revenge out of spite, hold grudges, and settle scorns. Like no other New Testament king, David was willing to welcome rebels back into the fold and overlook the sins of those who had opposed him. But even though he was amazingly kind-hearted to others, it didn't translate on a going easy on himself, on soft, being soft towards his own sin. Often people who are soft and kind with other people are also overly soft and kind with themselves, don't call out their, own, their sins in their own lives. But David was different. He was gracious with others and honest with himself. As much as he sinned, he never failed to own up to his own sin. He knew how to forgive. He knew how to repent as well. He never blamed anyone else for his mistakes, didn't make excuses for his family history, peer pressure, or the demands of leadership, did he? He owned up to the mistakes that he had made, yet was incredibly gracious to others. He was a man after God's own heart because he hated sin, but he loved to forgive it. He loved the justice of the law, the mercy and righteousness that God revealed, him, revealed in himself at Mount Sinai to Moses. David was great. And so, God makes a covenant with him. And this covenant, again, harks back to Abraham, and it is a continuation of the promises that he, God made to him, but also to Moses, and then makes an extra promise to establish a monarchy that will last forever. And so with this covenant is born this divinely instituted monarchy. Israel no longer functions as a random nation with a random king, but one that has an eternal covenant with God and their king. It is to be a transformed kingdom who says, whose ways will once again stand out from the kingdoms of the world and show God's blessing and show God's kingdom advancing in the world for the redemption of the world. So the obvious question for us as Christians is we are called to live under God as king. God as Lord is perhaps a way in which we describe it better, is where is our heart at? Are we like Saul? Are we like David? 
Do we have a heart that says we want to use God to get us through? We want to use God to achieve the purposes that I want to achieve in my life. Regardless of what I may have to do. Regardless of what that may look like. Or do we submit to God? Do we seek God's heart to form and shape our own hearts? And when I say heart here, when the Bible talks about heart, it doesn't just mean our emotions and our feelings, but it means our will and our desire. The things that we long after, the things that we put our focus on. Is our heart trying to submit God to us, or are we submitting our heart to God? Are we working on our agenda or God's? Are we relying on God's strength or our own? Are we keeping God in our lives so that we can control him to achieve what we want, or are we losing control to give it to God? There's another king a little bit later on in the story of of the Book of Kings, actually, Um, and his name's Omri. And King Omri was known from external non-biblical sources to be someone who expanded the kingdom as far as, if not even further than David. But he gets about nine verses. And David gets about, well, he gets chapters, he gets whole books after him. In 1 Kings 17, we see the difference. And we see why. Omri was politically mighty and politically great and politically renowned around the ancient Near East. But in 1 Kings 17, verses 25 and 26, Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. See, despite Omri's greatness, he was not a man after God's own heart. Despite his political greatness, he was not great in the sight of Israel or the sight of God. But it doesn't have to be one or the other. And what I mean by this is not everyone has to give up their life to go into the ministry and to uh, serve God in that way. God calls you to submit to him where you are, where he has called you, and put him first in whatever uh, situation, workplace, family you find yourself in. God wants us to honor him, not just with the ascent of our mouths and what we say, but with the whole of our lives. David is mentioned in books, in chapters after chapter after chapter, because he had a heart after God. Omri is given nine verses because he had a heart for political gain. The question is, how are we going to live out our lives for God, giving all, our all to him? And if we go to Romans chapter 10, we looked at this in our men's group today, uh, this week. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord 
and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and one is saved. It's both of those things. Confessing with our mouths the greatness of the Lord, but submitting our hearts, believing in our hearts to the will of God in our lives. Having a heart after God's heart, being empowered by His Spirit, and living our life fully for our King Jesus. King who is the descendant of David. Is it time for a change of regime in your life? Well, perhaps it's time to really give everything over to God. We need to constantly remind ourselves who is the king of our hearts, the king of our lives. We need to be like David, turning away from sin, not being easy on ourselves, but knowing that as sin is forgiven by the king, we too are called to show grace and forgiveness to others. So as we strive to live with our king in his kingdom here in Glendowie, I pray that we can be encouraged by David, by the call of God, by the strength that the Spirit gives us so that we can truly be faithful to God wherever we find ourselves, whatever calling God has on our lives, and do it all for the glory of God. So can I pray? Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you that you uh, are such a mighty king. That you do hold the world in your hands. And that you call us to behold you as the sovereign of this universe. And as people called by you, anointed with your Holy Spirit, we want to submit our lives to you. We want to be faithful to what you would have us do, to where you would have us go, to what you would have us give up and the mantle that you would have us take on. Strengthen us, Lord. Strengthen our hearts to love you more, to desire after you, and to do your will in our lives so that through us your kingdom may be expanded, your glory seen, and through this our lives transformed. Amen.